George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, Chapter 11. It will never be possible to get a completely accurate and unbiased account of the Barcelona fighting, because the necessary records do not exist. Future historians will have nothing to go upon except a mass of accusations and party propaganda. I myself have little data beyond what I saw with my own eyes, and what I learned from other eyewitnesses whom I believe to be reliable. I can, however, contradict some more flagrant lies and help to get the affair into some kind of perspective. First of all, what actually happened? For some time past, there have been tension throughout Catalonia. In earlier chapters of this book, I have given some account of the struggle between communists and anarchists. By May 1937, things had reached a point at which some kind of violent outbreak could be regarded as inevitable. The immediate cause of friction was the government's order to surrender all private weapons, coinciding with the decision to build up a heavily armed, non-political police force from which trade union members were to be excluded. The meaning of this was obvious to everyone, and it was also obvious that the next move would be the taking over of some of the key industries controlled by the CNT. In addition, there was a certain amount of resentment among the working classes because of the growing contrast of wealth and poverty, and a general vague feeling that the revolution had been sabotaged. Many people were agreeably surprised when there was no rioting on May 1st. On May 3rd, the government decided to take over the telephone exchange which had been operated since the beginning of the war mainly by CNT workers. It was alleged that it was badly run and that official calls were being tapped. Salas, the chief of police, who may or may not have been exceeding his orders, sent out three lorry loads of armed civil guards to seize the building while the streets outside were cleared by armed police in civilian clothes. At about the same time, bands of civil guards seized various other buildings in strategic spots. Whatever the real intention may have been, there was a widespread belief that this was the signal for a general attack on the CNT by the Civil Guards and the PSUC, Communists and Socialists. The word flew around the town that the workers' buildings were being attacked. Armed anarchists appeared in the streets, work ceased, and fighting broke out immediately. That night and the next morning, barricades were built all over the town, and there was no break in the fighting until the morning of May 6th. The fighting was, however, mainly defensive on both sides. Buildings were besieged, but so far as I know, none were stormed, and there is no use of artillery. Roughly speaking, the CNT, FAI, POUM forces held the working-class suburbs, and the armed police forces in the PSUC held the central and official portion of the town. On May 6th, there was an armistice, but fighting soon broke out again, probably because of premature attempts by civil guards to disarm CNT workers. Next morning, however, the people began to leave the barricades of their own accord. Up till roughly the night of May 5th, the CNT had had the better of it, and large numbers of civil guards had surrendered. But there was no generally accepted leadership and no fixed plan. Indeed, so far as one could judge, no plan at all except a vague determination to resist the civil guards. The official leaders of the CNT had joined with those of the UG team in imploring everyone to go back to work. Above all, food was running short. In such circumstances, nobody was sure enough of the issue to go on fighting. By the afternoon of May 7th, conditions were almost normal. That evening, 6,000 assault guards sent from sea, from Valencia, arrived and took control of the town. The government issued an order for the surrender of all arms except those held by the regular forces, and during the next few days, large numbers of arms were seized. The casualties during the fighting were officially given out as 400 killed and about 1,000 wounded. 400 killed is probably an exaggeration, but as there is no way of verifying this, we must accept it as accurate. Secondly, as to the after-effects of the fighting, obviously it is impossible to say with any certainty what these were. There is no evidence that the outbreak had any direct effect upon the course of the war, though it obviously must have if it continued even a few days longer. It was made the excuse for bringing Catalonia under the direct control of Valencia, for hastening the breakup of the militias, and for the suppression of the POUM, and no doubt it also had its share in bringing down the Caballero government. But we may take it as certain that these things would have happened in any case. The real question is whether the CNT workers who came to the street gained or lost by showing fight on this occasion. It is pure guesswork, but my own opinion is that they gained more than they lost. The seizure of the Barcelona telephone exchange was simply one incident in a long process. Since the previous year, direct power had been gradually maneuvered out of the hands of the syndicates, and the general movement was away from working-class control and towards centralized control, leading on to state capitalism, or possibly toward the reintroduction of private capitalism. 
The fact that at this point there was resistance probably slowed the process down. A year after the outbreak of war, the Catalan workers had lost much of their power, but their position was still comparatively favorable. It might have been much less so if they had made it clear that they would lie down under no matter what provocation. There are occasions when it pays better to fight and be beaten than not to fight at all. Thirdly, what purpose, if any, lay beyond the outbreak? Was it any kind of coup d'etat or revolutionary attempt? Did it definitely aim at overthrowing the government? Was it preconcerted at all? My own opinion is that the fighting was only preconcerted in the sense that everyone expected it. There were no signs of any definite plan on either side. On the anarchist side, the action was almost certainly spontaneous, for it was an affair mainly of the rank and file. The people came into the streets, and their political leaders followed reluctantly or did not follow at all. The only people who even talked in a revolutionary strain were the Friends of Derudi, a small extremist group within the FAI and the POUM. But once again, they were following and not leading. The Friends of Derudi distributed some kind of revolutionary leaflet, but this did not appear until May 5th and cannot be said to have started the fighting, which had started of its own accord two days earlier. The official leaders of the CNT disowned the whole affair from the start. There were a number of reasons for this, to begin with, the fact that the CNT was still represented in the government, and the general had ensured that its leaders would be more conservative than their followers. Secondly, the main object of the CNT leaders was to form an alliance with the UGT, and the fighting was bound to widen the split between the CNT and the UGT, at any rate for the time being. Thirdly, though this was not generally known at the time, the anarchist leaders feared that if things went beyond a certain point and the workers took possession of the town, as they were perhaps in a position to do on May 5th, there would be a foreign intervention. A British cruiser and two British destroyers had closed in on the harbor, and no doubt there were other warships not far away. The English newspapers gave it out that these ships were proceeding to Barcelona to protect British interests, but in fact they made no move to do so, that is, they did not land any men or take up any refugees. There can be no certainty about this, but it was at least inherently likely that the British government, which had not raised a finger to save the Spanish government from Franco, would intervene quickly enough to save it from its own working class. The POUM leaders did not disown the affair. In fact, they encouraged their followers to remain at the barricades and even gave their approval in the Bataille, 6 May, to the extremist leaflet issued by Franza Derudi. There was a great uncertainty about this leaflet, which no one now seems able to produce a copy. In some of the foreign papers, it was described as an inflammatory poster which was plastered all over the town. There was certainly no such poster. From comparison of various reports, I should say that the leaflet called for, one, formation of a revolutionary council, junta, two, the shooting of those responsible for the attack in the telephone exchange, three, the disarming of the civil guards. There is also some uncertainty as to how far Libataya expressed agreement with the leaflet. I myself did not see the leaflet or Libataya of that date. The only handbill I saw during the fighting was one issued by the tiny group of Trotskyists, Bolshevik-Leninists, on May 4th. This merely said, everyone to the barricades, general strike of all industries except war industries. In other words, it merely demanded what was happening already. But in reality, the attitude of the POUM leaders was hesitating. They had never been in favor of insurrection until the war against Franco was won. On the other hand, the workers had come into the streets, and the POUM leaders took the rather pedantic Marxist line that when the workers are on the streets, it is the duty of the revolutionary parties to be with them. Hence, in spite of uttering revolutionary slogans about the reawakening of the spirit of July 19th and so forth, they did their best to limit the workers' actions to the defensive. They never, for instance, ordered an attack on any building. They merely ordered their followers to remain on guard and, as I mentioned in the last chapter, not to fire when it could be avoided. The Bataille also issued instructions that no troops were to leave the front. A recent number of Infracor states the exact opposite, that Libataya orders the POUM troops to leave the front. The point can easily be settled by referring to Libataya on the date named. As far as one can estimate it, I should say that the responsibility of the POUM amounts to having urged everyone to remain at the barricades, and probably to having persuaded a certain number to remain there longer than they would otherwise have done. Those who were in personal touch with the POUM leaders at the time, I myself was not, have told me that they were, in reality, dismayed by the whole business, but felt they had got to associate themselves with it. Afterwards, of course, political capital is made out of it in the usual manner. Gorkin, one of the POUM leaders, even spoke later of the glorious days of May. From the propaganda point of view, this might have been the right line. Certainly the POUM rose somewhat in numbers during the brief period before its suppression. 
Tactically, it was probably a mistake to give countenance to the leaflet of the Friends of Derudi, which was a very small organization normally hostile to the POUM. Considering the general excitement and the things that were being said on both sides, the leaflet did not, in effect, mean much more than state the barricades. But by seeming to approve of it, while Solidaridad Obrera, the anarchist paper, repudiated it, the POUM leaders made it easy for the communist press to say afterwards that the fighting was a kind of insurrection engineered solely by the POUM. However, we may be certain that the communist press would have said this in any case. There was nothing compared with the accusations that were made both before and afterwards on less evidence. The CMT leaders did not gain much more by their cautious attitude. They were praised for their loyalty, but were levered out of both government and the general life as soon as the opportunity arose. So far as one could judge, from what people were saying at the time, there was no real revolutionary intention anywhere. The people behind the barricades were ordinary CNT workers, probably with a sprinkling of UGT workers among them, and what they were attempting was not to overthrow the government, but to resist what they regarded rightly or wrongly as an attack by the police. Their action was essentially defensive, and I doubt whether it should be described, as it was in nearly all the foreign newspapers, as a rising. A rising implies aggressive action and a definite plan. More exactly, it was a riot, a very bloody riot, because both sides had firearms in their hands were willing to use them. But what about the intentions on the other side? If it was not an anarchist coup d'etat, was it perhaps a communist coup d'etat, a planned effort to smash the power of the CNT at one blow? I do not believe it was, though certain things might lead one to suspect it. It is significant that something very similar, seizure of the telephone exchange by the armed police acting under orders from Barcelona, happened in Tarragona two days later. And in Barcelona, the raid on the telephone exchange was not an isolated act. In various parts of the town, bands of civil guards and PSUC adherents seized buildings in strategic spots, if not actually before the fighting started, at any rate, with surprising promptitude. But what one has to remember is that these things were happening in Spain and not in England. Barcelona is a town with a long history of street fighting. In such places, things happen quickly. The factions are ready-made. Everyone knows the local geography, and when the guns begin to shoot, people take their places almost as in a fire drill. Presumably, those responsible for the seizure of the telephone exchange expected trouble, though not on the scale that actually happened, and had made ready to meet it. But it's not followed that they were planning a general attack on the CNT. There are two reasons why I do not believe that either side had made preparations for large-scale fighting. One, neither side had brought troops to Barcelona beforehand. The fighting was only between those who were in Barcelona already, mainly civilians and police. Two, the food ran short almost immediately. Anyone who has served in Spain knows that the one operation of war that Spaniards really perform well is that of feeding their troops. It is unlikely that if either side had contemplated a week or two of street fighting and a general strike, they would not have stored food beforehand. Finally, as to the rights and wrongs of the affair, a tremendous dust was kicked up in the foreign anti-fascist press, but as usual, only one side of the case had anything like a hearing. As a result, the Barcelona fighting has been represented as an insurrection by disloyal anarchists and Trotskyists who were stabbing the Spanish government in the back and so forth. The issue was not quite so simple as that. Undoubtedly, when you are at war with a deadly enemy, it is better not to begin fighting among yourselves. But it is worth remembering that it takes two to make a quarrel, and that people do not begin building barricades unless they have received something that they regard as a provocation. The trouble sprang naturally out of the government's order to the anarchists to surrender their arms. In the English press, this was translated into English terms and took this form, that arms were desperately needed on the Aragon front and could not be sent there because the unpatriotic anarchists were holding them back. Put it like this, is to ignore the conditions actually existing in Spain. Everyone knows that both the anarchists and the PSUC were hoarding arms, and when the fighting broke out in Barcelona, this was made clearer still. Both sides produced arms in abundance. The anarchists were well aware that even if they surrendered their arms, the PSUC, politically the main power in Catalonia, would retain theirs, and this, in fact, was what happened after the fighting was over. Meanwhile, actually visible on the streets, there were quantities of arms which would have been very welcome at the front, but which were being retained for the non-political police forces in the rear. And underneath this, there was the irreconcilable difference between communists and anarchists, which was bound to lead to some kind of struggle sooner or later. Since the beginning of the war, the Spanish Communist Party had grown enormously in numbers and captured most of the political power, and there had come into Spain thousands of foreign communists, many of whom were openly expressing their intention of liquidating anarchism as soon as the war against Franco was won. In the circumstances, one could hardly expect the anarchists to hand over the weapons which they had got possession of in the summer of 1936. 
The seizure of the telephone exchange was simply the match that fired an already existing bomb. It is perhaps just conceivable that those responsible imagined it would not lead to trouble. Company of the Catalan president is said to have declared laughingly a few days earlier, the anarchists would put up with anything. But certainly it was not a wise action. For months past, there had been a long series of armed clashes between communists and anarchists in various parts of Spain and Catalonia, and especially Barcelona was in a state of tension that had already led to street affrays, assassinations, and so forth. Suddenly the news ran round the city that armed men were attacking the buildings that the workers had captured in July fighting, and to which they attached great sentimental importance. One must remember that the civil guards were not loved by the working class population. For generations past, La Guardia had simply been an appendage of the landlord and the boss, and the civil guards were doubly hated because they were suspected, quite justly, of being a very doubtful loyalty against the fascists. At the outbreak of the war, the civil guards had everywhere sided with the stronger party. On several occasions later in the war, e.g. at Santander, the local civil guards went over to the fascists in a body. It is probable that the emotion that brought people into the streets in the first few hours was much the same emotion as had led them to resist the rebel generals at the beginning of the war. Of course, it is arguable that the CNT workers ought to have handed over the telephone exchange without protest. One's opinion here will be governed by one's attitude on the question of centralized government and working class control. More relevantly, it may be said, yes, very likely the CNT had a case, but after all, there was a war and they had no business to start a fight behind the lines. Here, I agree entirely, any internal disorder was likely to aid Franco, but what actually precipitated the fighting? The government may or may not have had the right to seize a telephone exchange. The point is that, in the actual circumstances, it was bound to lead to a fight. It was a provocative action, a gesture which said, in effect, and presumably was meant to say, your power is at an end, we are taking over. It was not common sense to expect anything but resistance. If one keeps a sense of proportion, one must realize that the fault was not, could not be in a matter of this kind, entirely on one side. The reason why a one-sided version has been accepted is simply that the Spanish revolutionary parties have no footing in the foreign press. In the English press in particular, you would have to search for a long time before finding any favorable reference at any period of the war to the Spanish anarchists. They have been systematically denigrated, and as I know by my own experience, it is almost impossible to get anyone to print anything in their defense. I have tried to write objectively about the Barcelona fighting, though obviously no one can be completely objective on a question of this kind. One is practically obliged to take sides, and it must be clear enough which side I am on. Again, I must inevitably have made mistakes of fact, not only here but in other parts of this narrative. It is very difficult to write accurately about the Spanish War because of the lack of non-propagandist documents. I warn everyone against my bias, and I warn everyone against my mistakes. Still, I have done my best to be honest. But it will be seen that the account I have given is completely different from that which appeared in the foreign and especially the communist press. It is necessary to examine the communist version because it was published all over the world, has been supplemented at short intervals ever since, and is probably the most widely accepted one. In the communist and pro-communist press, the entire blame for the Barcelona fighting was laid upon the POUM. The affair was represented not as a spontaneous outbreak, but as a deliberate, planned insurrection against the government engineered solely by the POUM, with the aid of a few misguided uncontrollables. More than this, it was de definitely a fascist plot, carried out under fascist orders with the idea of starting civil war in the rear and thus paralyzing the government. The POUM was Franco's fifth column, a Trotskyist organization working in league with the fascists, according to the Daily Worker, May 11th. The German and Italian agents who poured into Barcelona ostensibly to prepare the notorious Congress of the Fourth International had one big task. It was this. They were, in cooperation with the local Trotskyists, to prepare for a situation of disorder in bloodshed in which it would be possible for the Germans and Italians to declare that they were unable to exercise naval control of the Catalan coast effectively because of the disorder prevailing in Barcelona and were, therefore, unable to do otherwise than land forces in Barcelona. In other words, it was being repaired was a situation in which the German and Italian governments could land troops and marines quite openly on the Catalan coast, declaring they were doing so in order to preserve order. The instrument for all this lay ready to hand for the Germans and Italians in the shape of the Trotskyist organization known as the POUM. The POUM acting in cooperation with well-known criminal elements, with certain other deluded persons in the anarchist organization's plan, organized and led the attack in the rear guard accurately timed to coincide with the attack on the front at Bilbao, etc., etc., 
<clears throat> later in the article, the Barcelona fighting becomes the POUM attack. And in another article in the same issue, it is stated that there is no doubt that it is at the door of the POUM that the responsibility for the bloodshed in Catalonia must be laid. Infracor, May 29th, states that those who erected the barricades in Barcelona were only members of the POUM organized from that party for this purpose. I could quote a great deal more, but this is clear enough. The POUM was wholly responsible, and the POUM was acting under fascist orders. In a moment, I will give some more extracts from the accounts that appeared in the communist press. It will be seen that they are so self-contradictory as to be completely worthless. But before doing so, it is worth pointing to several a priori reasons why this version of the May fighting as a fascist rising engineered by the POUM is next door to incredible. Number one. The POUM had not the numbers or influence to provoke disorders of this magnitude, still less had it the power to call a general strike. It was a political organization with no very definite footing in trade unions, and could hardly have been more capable of producing a strike throughout Barcelona than, say, the English Communist Party would be of producing a general strike throughout Glasgow. As I said earlier, the attitude of the POUM leaders may have helped prolong the fighting to some extent, for they could not have originated it, even if they had wanted to. <coughs> Number two. The alleged fascist plot rests on their assertion, and all of the evidence points in the other direction. We are told that the plan was for the German and Italian governments to land troops in Catalonia, but no German or Italian troop ships approached the coast. As to the Congress of the Fourth International and the German and Italian agents, they are pure myth. So far as I know, there had not even been any talk of a Congress of the Fourth International. There were big plans for a Congress of the POUM and its brother parties, English ILP, German SAP, etc., etc., this had been tentatively fixed for some time in July, two months later, but not a single delegate had yet arrived. The German and Italian agents have no existence outside the pages of the Daily Worker. Anyone who crossed the frontier at that time knows that it was not so easy to pour into Spain, or out of it for that matter. Number three. Nothing happened at either Lerida, the chief stronghold of the POUM, or at the front. It is obvious that if the POUM leaders had wanted to aid the fascists, they would have ordered their militia to walk out of the line and let the fascists through. But nothing of the kind was done or suggested, nor were any extra men brought out of the line beforehand, though it would have been easy enough to smuggle, say, a thousand or two thousand men back to Barcelona on various pretexts. And there was no attempt, even at indirect sabotage in the front. The transport of food, munitions, and so forth continued as usual. I verified this by inquiry afterwards. Above all, a planned rising of the kind suggested would have needed months of preparation, subversive propaganda among the militia, and so forth. But there was no sign or rumor of any such thing. The fact that the militia at the front played no part in the rising should be conclusive. If the POUM were really planning a coup d'etat, it is inconceivable that they would not have used the 10,000 or so armed men who were the only striking force they had. It will be clear enough from this that the communist thesis of a POUM rising under fascist orders rests on less than no evidence. I will add a few more extracts from the communist press. The communist accounts of the opening incident, the raid on the telephone exchange, are illuminating. They agree in nothing except in putting the blame on the other side. It is noticeable that in the communist papers, the blame is put first upon the anarchists and only later on the POUM. There's a fairly obvious reason for this. Not everyone in England has heard of Trotskyism, whereas every English-speaking person shudders at the name of anarchist. Let it once be known that anarchists are implicated, and the right atmosphere of prejudice is established. After that, the blame can safely be transferred to the Trotskyists. Daily Worker begins thus, May 6th. A minority gang of anarchists on Monday and Tuesday seized and attempted to hold the telephone and telegram buildings and started firing into the street. <sighs> There's nothing like starting off with a reversal of roles. The civil guards attack a building held by the CNT, so the CNT are represented as attacking their own building, attacking themselves, in fact. On the other hand, the Daily Worker of May 11 states, The left Catalan minister of public security, Ayuade, and the United Socialist General Commissar of Public Orders, Rodriguez Salas, sent the armed Republican police into the Telefonica building to disarm the employees there, most of them members of the CNT unions. This does not seem to agree very well with the first statement. Nevertheless, Daily Worker contains no admission that the first statement was 
wrong. The daily worker of May 11th states that the leaflets of the Friends of Drudy, which were disowned by the CNT, appeared on May 4th and 5th during the fighting. Imprecor, May 22nd, states that they appeared on May 3rd before the fighting and adds that, in view of these facts, the appearance of various leaflets, the police, led by the prefect of police in person, occupied the central teleport exchange in the afternoon of May 3rd. The police were shot at while discharging their duty. This was a signal for the provocateurs to begin shooting a phrase all over the city. And here's an imprecor from May 29th. At three o'clock in the afternoon, the Commissar of Public Security, Comrade Salas, went to the telephone exchange, which on previous night had been ex occupied by 50 members of the PUM and various uncontrollable elements. This seems rather curious. The occupation of the telephone exchange by 50 PUM members is what one might call a picturesque circumstance, and one would have expected somebody to notice it at the time. Yet it appears that it was only discovered three or four weeks later. In another issue of Imprecor, the 50 POUM members become 50 POUM militiamen. It would be difficult to pack together more contradictions that are contained in these few short passages. At one moment, the CMT are attacking the telephone exchange. Next, they are being attacked there. A leaflet appears before the seizure of the telephone exchange, and is the cause of it, or alternatively appears afterwards and is the result of it. People in the telephone exchange are alternatively CMT members and POUM members, and so on. And in a still later issue of The Daily Worker, June 3rd, Mr. J.R. Campbell informs us that the government only sees a telephone exchange because the barricades were already erected. For reasons of space, I have taken only the reports of one incident, but the same discrepancies run through all the accounts in the communist press. In addition, there are various statements which are obviously pure fabrication. Here, for instance, is something quoted by The Daily Worker, May 7th, and said to have been issued by the Spanish Embassy in Paris. A significant feature of the uprising has been that the old monarchist flag was thrown from the balcony of various houses in Barcelona, doubtless in the belief that those who took part in the rising had become masters of the situation. The daily worker probably reprinted the statement in good faith, but those responsible for it at the Spanish embassy must have been quite deliberately lying. Any Spaniard will understand the internal situation better than that. A monarchist flag in Barcelona! It was the same thing that could have united the warring factions in a moment. Even the communists in the spot were obliged to smile when they read about it. It is the same with the reports in the various communist papers upon the arms supposed to have been used by the POUM during the Rising. They would be credible only if one knew nothing whatever of the facts. In the Daily Work of May 17th, Mr. Frank Pitcairn states, There were, actually, all sorts of arms used by them in the outrage. There were the arms which they've been stealing from months past and hidden in mirror arms, such as tanks which they stole from the barracks just at the beginning of the Rising. It is clear that scores of machine guns and several thousand rifles are still in their possession. Imprecor, May uh, 29th, also states, On May 3rd, the POUM had its disposal some dozens of machine guns and several thousand rhymes on the Plaza de España, the Trotskyists brought into action batteries of 75 guns which were destined for their front in Aragon, and which the militia had carefully concealed in their premises. Mr. Pitcairn does not tell us how and when it became dear that the POUM possessed scores of machine guns and several thousand rifles. I have given an estimate of the arms which were at three of the principal POUM buildings about 80 rifles, a few bombs, and no machine guns, i.e. about sufficient for the armed guards, which, at the time, all the political parties placed on their buildings. It seems strange that afterwards, when the POUM was suppressed and all its buildings seized, that these weapons never came to light, especially the tanks and the field guns, which are not the kind of thing that can be hidden up the chimney. But what is revealing in the two statements above is the complete ignorance they display of the local circumstances. According to Mr. Pitcairn, the POUM stole tanks from the barracks. He does not tell us which barracks. The POUM militiamen, who were in Barcelona now comparatively few as direct recruitment to the party militias had ceased, shared the Lenin barracks with a considerably larger number of popular army troops. Mr. Pitcairn is asking us to believe, therefore, that the POUM stole tanks with the connivance of the popular army. It is the same with the premises on which the 75mm guns were concealed. There is no mention of where these premises were. Those batteries of guns firing on the Plaza de España appeared in many newspaper reports, but I think we can say with certainty that they never existed. As I mentioned earlier, I heard no artillery fire during the fighting. 
though the Plaza de España was only a mile or so away. A few days later, I examined the Plaza de España and could find no buildings that showed marks of shell fire. And an eyewitness who was in that neighborhood throughout the fighting declares that no guns ever appeared there. Incidentally, the tale of the stolen guns may have originated with Antonov Afsyanko, the Russian consul general. He, at any rate, communicated it to a well-known journalist who afterwards repeated it in good faith in a weekly paper. Antonov Afsyanko has since been purged. <laughs> How this would affect his credibility, I do not know. The truth is, of course, that these tales about tanks, field guns, and so forth have only been invented because otherwise it is difficult to reconcile the scale of the Barcelona fighting within the POUM's small numbers. It was necessary to claim that the POUM was wholly responsible for the fighting. It was also necessary to claim that it was an insignificant party with no following and numbered only a few thousand members, according to Imprecor. The only hope of making both statements credible was to pretend that the POUM had all the weapons of a modern mechanized army. It is impossible to read through the reports in the communist press without realizing that they are consciously aimed at a public ignorant of the facts and have no other purpose than to work at prejudice. Hence, for instance, such statements as Mr. Pitcairn's and the Daily Worker of May 11th, that the rising was suppressed by the popular army. The idea here is to give outsiders the impression that all Catalonia was solid against the Trotskyists. But the popular army remained neutral throughout the fighting. Everyone in Barcelona knew this, and it is difficult to believe that Mr. Pitcairn did not know it too. Or again, the juggling in the communist press with the figures for killed and wounded with the object of exaggerating the scale of the disorders. Diaz, general secretary of the Spanish Communist Party, widely quoted in the communist press, gave the numbers at 900 dead and 2,500 wounded. The Catalan minister of propaganda, who was hardly likely to underestimate, gave the numbers as 400 killed and 1,000 wounded. The communist Party doubles the bid and adds a few more hundreds for luck. Foreign capitalist newspaper in general laid the blame for the fighting upon the anarchists, but there were a few that followed the communist line. One of these was the English News Chronicle, whose correspondent, Mr. John Langdon Davies, was in Barcelona at the two, and I quote, portions of his article here. A Trotskyist revolt. This has not been an anarchist uprising. It is a frustrated putsch of the Trotskyist POUM working through their controlled organizations, friends of Derudian libertarian youth. The tragedy began on Monday afternoon with the government sent armed police into the telephone building to disarm the workers there, mostly C&D men. Grave irregularities in the service had been a scandal for some time. A large crowd gathered in the Plaza de Catalonia outside where the CNT men resisted, retreating floor by floor to the top of the building. The incident was very obscure, but word went round that the government was out against the anarchists. The street filled with armed men. By nightfall, every worker center and government building was barricaded, and at ten o'clock the first volleys were fired, and the first ambulances began ringing their way through the streets by dawn. All Barcelona was under fire as they were on and they had mounted to over a hundred. One could make a guess at what was happening. The anarchist CNT and socialist UGT were not technically out in the streets so long as they remained behind the barricades. They were merely watchfully waiting, an attitude which included the right to shoot at anything armed in the open street. The general bursts were invariably aggravated by Pacos and solitary men, usually fascists shooting from rooftops, at nothing in particular, but doing all they could to add to the general panic. By Wednesday evening, however, it began to be clear who was behind the revolt. All the walls had been plastered with an inflammatory poster calling for an immediate revolution for the shooting of Republican and socialist leaders. It was signed by the Friends of Derudi. On Thursday morning, the anarchists daily denied all knowledge or sympathy with it, but Le Bataille, the POUM paper, reported the document with the highest praise. Barcelona, the first city of Spain, was plunged into bloodshed by agents provocateur using the subversive organization. This does not agree very completely with the communist versions I have quoted above, but it will be seen that even as it stands, it is a contradictory. First, the affair is described as a Trotskyist revolt, then it is shown to have resulted from a raid in the telephone building and a general belief that the government was out against the anarchists. The city is barricaded, and both CNT and UGT are behind the barricades. Two days afterwards, the inflammatory po poster actually leaked appears. And this is declared by implication to have started the whole business, effect preceding cause. But there is a piece of very serious misrepresentation here. Mr. Langdon Davies describes the Friends of the Derudian Libertarian Youth as controlled organizations of the POUM. Both were anarchist organizations and had no connection with the POUM. The Libertarian Youth was the Youth League of the Anarchists, corresponding to the JSU of the PSUC, etc., the Friends of Derudi was a small organization within the FAI and was in general bitterly hostile to the POUM. 
So far as I can discover, there was no one who was a member of both. It would be equally true to say that the Socialist League is a controlled organization of the English Liberal Party. Was Mr. Langdon Davies unaware of this? If he was, he should have written with more caution about this very complex subject. I am not attacking Mr. Langdon Davies' good faith, but admittedly, he left Barcelona as soon as the fighting was over, i.e. at the moment when he could have begun serious inquiries, and throughout his report there are clear signs that he has accepted the official version of a Trotskyist revolt without sufficient verification. This is obvious even in the extract I have quoted. By nightfall, the barricades are built at ten o'clock, the first volleys are fired. These are not the words of an eyewitness. From this, you would gather that it is usual to wait for your enemy to build a barricade before beginning to shoot at him. The impression given is that some hours elapsed between the building of the barricades and the firing of the first volleys, whereas, naturally, it was the other way about. I and many others saw the first volleys fired early in the afternoon. Again, there are the solitary men, usually fascists, who are shooting from the rooftops. Mr. Langdon Davies does not explain how he knew that these men were fascists. Presumably, he did not climb on top of the roofs to ask them. He is simply repeating what he has been told, and, as it fits in with the official version, is not questioning it. As a matter of fact, he indicates one probable source of much of his information by an incautious reference to the Minister of Propaganda at the beginning of his article. Foreign journalists in Spain were hopelessly at the mercy of the Ministry of Propaganda, but one would think that the very name of this ministry would be a sufficient warning. The Minister of Propaganda was, of course, about as likely to give an objective account of the Barcelona Trouble as, say, the Lord Carson would have been to give an objective account of the Dublin Rising of 1916. I have given reasons for thinking that the communist version of Barcelona fighting cannot be taken seriously. In addition, I must say something about the general charge that the POUM was a secret fascist organization in the pay of Franco and Hitler. This charge was repeated over and over in the communist press, especially from the beginning of 1937 onwards. It was part of the worldwide drive of the official communist party against Trotskyism, of which the POUM was supposed to be representative in Spain. Trotskyism, according to Frente Rojo, the Valencia communist paper, is not a political doctrine. Trotskyism is an official capitalist organization, a fascist terrorist band occupied in crime and sabotage against the people. POUM was a Trotskyist organization in league with the fascists and part of Franco's fifth column. What was noticeable from the start was that no evidence was produced in support of this accusation. The thing was simply asserted with an air of authority, and the attack was made with the maximum of personal libel and with complete irresponsibility as to any effects it might have upon the war. Compared to the job of libeling the POUM, many communist writers appear to have considered the job of betrayal of military secrets unimportant. In a February number of the Daily Worker, for instance, a writer, Winifred Bates, is allowed to state that the POUM had only half as many troops in its section of the front as it pretended. This was not true, but presumably the writer believed it to be true. She and the Daily Worker were perfectly willing, therefore, to hand to the enemy one of the most important pieces of information that can be handed through the columns of the newspaper. In the New Republic, Mr. Ralph Bates stated that the POUM troops were playing football with the fascists in no man's land at a time when, as a matter of fact, the POUM troops were suffering heavy casualties and a number of my personal friends were killed and wounded. Again, there was a malignant cartoon which was widely circulated, first midrid and later in Barcelona, representing the POUM as a slipping off of a mask marked with a hammer and sickle, revealing a face marked with a swastika. Had the government not been virtually under communist control, it would never have permitted a thing of this kind to be circulated in wartime. It was a deliberate blow at the morale, not only of the POUM militia, but of any others who happened to be near them, for it is not encouraging to be told that the troops next to you in the line are traitors. As a matter of fact, I doubt whether the abuse was heaped upon them from the rear actually had the effect of demoralizing the POUM militia, but certainly it was calculated to do so, and those responsible for it must be held to put political spite before anti-fascist unity. The accusation against POUM admitted to the, amounted to this. The body of some scores of thousands of people, almost entirely working class, besides numerous foreign helpers and sympathizers, mostly refugees from fascist countries, and thousands of militia, was simply a vast spying organization in fascist pay. The thing was opposed to common sense, and the past history of the POUM was enough to make it credible. All the POUM leaders had revolutionary histories behind them. Some of them had been mixed up in the 1934 revolt, and most of them had been imprisoned for socialistic activities under the Liberal government of the monarchy. In 1936, its then-leader, Joaquin Morin, was one of the deputies who gave warning in the Cortes of Franco's impending revolt. 
Some time after the outbreak of war, he was taken prisoner by the fascists while trying to organize resistance in Franco's rear. When the revolt broke out, the POUM played a conspicuous part in resisting it, and in Madrid, in particular, many of its members were killed in the street fighting. It was one of the first bodies to form columns of militia in Catalonia and Madrid. It seems almost impossible to explain these as the actions of a party in fascist pay. A party in fascist pay would simply have joined the, in on the other side. Nor was there any side of pro-fascist activities during the war. It was arguable, though finally I do not agree, that by pressing for a more revolutionary policy, the POUM divided the government forces and thus aided the fascists. I think any government of performance type would be justified in regarding a party like POUM as a nuisance. But this is a very different matter from a direct treachery. There is no way of explaining why, if the POUM was really a fascist body, its militia remained loyal. Here were eight or ten thousand men holding important parts of the line during the intolerable conditions of the winter of 1936 and 37. Many of them were in the trenches four or five months at a stretch. It is difficult to see why they did not simply walk out of the line and go over to the enemy. It was always in their power to do so, and at times the effect might have been decisive. Yet they continued to fight, and it was shortly after the POUM was suppressed as a political party, when the event was fresh in everyone's mind, that the militia, not yet redistributed among the popular army, took part in the murderous attack to the east of Huesca, and several thousand men were killed in one or two days. At the very least, one would have expected fraternization with the enemy in a constant trickle of deserters. But again, as I have pointed out earlier, the number of desertions was exceptionally small. Again, one would have expected pro-fascist propaganda, defeatism, and so forth, yet there was no sign of any such thing. Obviously, there must have been fascist spies and agents provocateur in the POUM. They exist in all left-wing parties, but there is no evidence that there are more of them there than elsewhere. It is true that some of the attacks in the communist press said, rather grudgingly, that only the POUM leaders were in fascist pay and not the rank and file. But this was merely an attempt to detach the rank and file from their leaders. The nature of the accusation implied that ordinary members, militiamen, and so forth were all in the plot together, for it was obvious that if Min Gorkin and the others were really in fascist pay, it was more likely to be known to their followers who were in contact with them than to journalists in London, Paris, and New York. And in any case, when the POUM was suppressed, the communist-controlled secret police acted on the assumption that all were guilty alike and arrested everyone connected with the POUM whom they could lay hands on, including even wounded men, hospital nurses, wives of POUM members, and in some cases even children. Finally, on June 15th and 16th, the POUM was suppressed and declared an illegal organization. This is one of the first acts of the Negrin government, which came into office in May, when the executive committee of the POUM had been thrown into jail, communist press produced what purported to be the discovery of an enormous fascist plot. For a while, the communist press of the whole world was flaming with this kind of thing, Daily Worker, June 21st, summarizing various Spanish communist papers, Spanish Trotskyist plot with Franco. Following the arrest of a large number of leading Trotskyists in Barcelona and elsewhere, there became known over the weekend details of one of the most ghastly pieces of espionage ever known in wartime and the ugliest revelation of Trotskyist treachery to date. Documents in the possession of the police, together with the full confession of no less than 200 persons under arrest, prove, etc., etc. What these revelations proved was that the POUM leaders were transmitting military secrets to General Franco by radio, were in touch with Berlin, and were acting in collaboration with a secret fascist organization in Madrid. In addition, there were sensational details about secret messages and invisible ink and mysterious documents signed with the letter N standing for name, and so forth. But the final upshot was this. Six months after the event, as I write, most of the POUM leaders are still in jail, but they have never been brought to trial, and the charges of communicating with Franco by radio, etc., have never even been formulated. Had they really been guilty of espionage, they would have been tried and shot in a week, as so many fascist spies had been previously. But not a scrap of evidence was ever produced except the unsupported statements in the communist press. As for the 200 full confessions, which if they had existed would have been enough to convict anybody, they have never been heard of again. They were, in fact... 200 efforts of somebody's imagination. More than this, most of the members of the Spanish government have disclaimed all belief in the charges against the POUM. Recently, the cabinet decided by 5-2 to two in favor of releasing anti-fascist political prisoners, the two dissentients being the communist ministers. In August, an international delegation held by James Maxson MP went to Spain to inquire into the charges against the POUM and the disappearance of Andres Nin Prieto, 
the Minister of National Defense, Irojo, the Minister of Justice, Suga Zaguitia, Minister of the Interior, Ortega y Gasset, the Procurer General, Prat Garcia, and others all repudiated any belief in the POUM leaders being guilty of espionage. Irojo added that he had been through the dossier of the case, that none of the so-called pieces of evidence would bear examination, and that the document supposed to have been signed by Nin was valueless, i.e. a forgery. Freyeto considered the POUM leaders to be responsible for the May fighting in Barcelona, but dismissed the idea of their being fascist spies. What is most grave, he added, is that the arrest of the POUM leaders was not decided upon by the government, and the police carried out these arrests on their own authority. Those responsible are not the heads of police, but their entourage, which has been infiltrated by the communists according to their usual custom. He cited other cases of illegal arrests by the police. Irujo likewise declared that the police had become quasi-independent and were, in reality, under the control of foreign communist elements. Prieto hinted fairly broadly to the delegation that the government could not afford to offend the Communist Party while the Russians were supplying arms. When another delegation headed by John McGovern MP went to Spain in December, they got much the same answers as before, and Zuga Zagoitia, the Minister of the Interior, refuted Prieto's hint in even plainer terms. We have received aid from Russia and have had to permit this certain actions which we did not like. As an illustration of the autonomy of the police, it is interesting to learn that even with a signed order from the Director of Prisons and the Minister of Justice, McGovern and the others could not obtain admission to one of the secret prisons maintained by the Communist Party in Barcelona. I think this should be enough to make the matter clear. The accusation of espionage against POUM rested solely upon the articles in the Communist press and the activities of the Communist-controlled secret police. The POUM leaders and hundreds of thousands of their followers are still in prison, and for six months past, the communist press has continued to clamor for the execution of the traitors, but Negrin and others have kept their heads and refused to stage a wholesale massacre of Trotskyists. Considering the pressure that has been put upon them, it is greatly to their credit that they have done so. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the face of what I have quoted above, it becomes very difficult to believe the POUM was really a fascist spying organization unless one also believes that Max and McGovern, Prieto, Zuga and the rest are all in fascist pay together. Finally, as for the charge of the POUM was Trotskyist, this word is now flung about with greater and greater freedom and is used in a way that is extremely misleading and is often intended to mislead. It is worth stopping to define it. The word Trotskyist is used to mean three things. One. One who, like Trotsky, advocates a world revolution as against socialism in a single country. More loosely, a revolutionary extremist. Two, a member of the actual organization of which Trotsky is head. Three, a disguised fascist posing as a revolutionary who acts especially by sabotage in the USSR, but in general by splitting and undermining the left-wing forces. In sense one, the POUM could probably be described as Trotskyist. So can the English IOP, the German SAP, the Left Socialists in France, and so on. But the POUM had no connection with Trotsky or the Trotskyist Bolshevist Leninist organization. When the war broke out and foreign Trotskyists, who came to Spain 15 or 20 number, worked at first for the POUM as the party nearest to their own viewpoint, but without becoming party members. Later, Trotsky ordered his followers to attack the POUM policy, and the Trotskyists were purged from the party offices, though a few remained in the militia. Nin, the POUM leader, after Marine's capture, <coughs> captured by the fascists, was at one time Trotsky's secretary, but had left him some years earlier, and formed the POUM by the amalgamation of various opposition communists with an earlier party, the Workers' and Peasants' Bloc. Nin's one-time association with Trotsky has been used in the communist press to show that the POUM was really Trotskyist. By the same line of argument, it could be shown that the English Communist Party is really a fascist organization because of Mr. John Strachey's one-time association with Sir Oswald Mosley. In sense, too, the only exactly defined sense of the word, the POUM was certainly not Trotskyist. It is important to make this distinction because it is taken for granted by the majority of communists that a Trotskyist in sense, too, is invariably a Trotskyist in sense, three, i.e., that the whole Trotskyist organization is simply a fascist spying machine. Trotskyism only came into public notice in the time of the Russian sabotage trials, and to call him a Trotskyist is practically equivalent to calling him a murderer, agent provocateur, etc. But at the same time, anyone who criticizes Communist Party from a left-wing standpoint is liable to be denounced as a Trotskyist. It is then asserted that everyone professing revolutionary extremism is in fascist pay. 
in practice it is or is not according to local convenience. When Maxson went to Spain with the delegation I mentioned above, Verdad, Frente Rojo, and other Spanish communist papers instantly denounced him as a Trotsky fascist, the spy of the Gestapo, and so forth. Yet the English communists were careful not to repeat this accusation. In the English communist press, Maxson becomes merely a reactionary enemy of the working class, which is conveniently vague. The reason, of course, is simply that several sharp lessons have given the English communist press a wholesome dread of the law of libel. The fact that the accusation was not repeated in a country where it might have, where it might have to be proved is sufficient confession that it is a lie. It may seem that I have discussed the accusations against the POUM at greater length than was necessary. Compared with the huge miseries of the Civil War, this kind of internecine squabble between parties, with its inevitable injustices and false accusations, may appear trivial. It is not really so. I believe that libels and press campaigns of this kind in the habits of mind they indicate are capable of doing the most deadly damage to anti-fascist cause. Anyone who has given the subject a glance knows that the communist tactic of dealing with political opponents by means of trumped-up accusations is nothing new. Today the keyword is Trotsky fascist, yesterday it was social fascist, it is only six or seven years since the Russian state trials proved that the leaders of the Second International, including Francis Leon Bloom and prominent members of the British Labour Party, were hatching a huge plot for the military invasion of the USSR. Yet today the French communists are glad enough to accept Bloom as a leader, and the English communists are raising heaven and earth to get inside the Labour Party. I doubt whether this kind of thing pays, even from a sectarian point of view. And meanwhile, there is no possible doubt about the hatred and dissension that the Trotsky fascist accusation is causing. Rank-and-file communists everywhere are led away on a senseless witch-hunt after Trotskyists, and parties of the type of the POUM are driven back into the terribly sterile position of being mere anti-communist parties. There is already the beginning of a dangerous split in the world working-class movement. A few more libels against lifelong socialists, a few more frame-ups like charges against the POUM, and the split may become irreconcilable. The only hope is to keep political controversy on a plane where exhaustive discussion is possible. Between the communists and those who stand or claim to stand to the left of them, there is a real difference. Communists hold that fascism can be beaten by alliance with sections of the capitalist class, popular front. Their opponents hold that this maneuver simply gives fascism new breeding grounds. The question has got to be settled. To make the wrong decision may be to land ourselves in centuries of semi-slavery. But so long as no argument is produced except a scream of Trotsky fascists, the tr discussion cannot even begin. It would be impossible for me, for instance, to debate the rights and wrongs of the Barcelona fighting with a communist party member because no communist, that is to say no good communist, could admit that I had given a truthful account of the facts. If he followed his party line dutifully, he would have to declare that I am lying, or at best, that I am hopelessly misled, and that anyone who glanced at the Daily Worker headlines a thousand miles from the scene of events knows more of what was happening in Barcelona than I do. In such circumstances, there can be no argument. The necessary minimum of agreement cannot be reached. What purpose is served by saying that men like Maxson are in fascist pay? Only the purpose of making serious discussion impossible. It is as though in the middle of a chess tournament one competitor should suddenly begin screaming that the other is guilty of arson or bigamy. The point that is really at issue remains untouched. Libel settles nothing.